0: All right, well, we serve a jealous God, amen? Right? That doesn't really get you, does it? Try again, we serve a jealous God, amen? Amen. You you can't really even say it very enthusiastically, right? Why is that, right? Well, it says it over and over in the Old Testament, right? Over and over, when God's talking about himself, he says, I am a jealous God. So it's probably accurate, right? I mean, it's probably true if he says that. Um, So if we look at uh, the concept of jealousy, there's a question of, is jealousy a good thing? So if you were to say, see a couple and they're dating and you were to say, oh, he's really a jealous boyfriend or she's really a jealous girlfriend, would you think that's really a good thing? The other, the other question I would wonder, um, if you were to think about measuring, when you look through the Old Testament, from time to time, God will send an angel of some sort and he will have a measuring rod or a measuring string and he'll spread it out and he'll be measuring things, right? So I wonder how we feel if God were to say, I'm getting ready to measure Lynchburg, I'm getting ready to measure your own life. Um, do we say amen to that, or do we get uncomfortable again? Um, I know for me, when I think of him being the jealous God who holds, he's holding the stick here, but he's also her- holding, some, um, holding a ruler, but he's also holding a stick, and specifically it's a burnt stick. So it mean, just doesn't get any better. I mean, right? This is an amazing God. He's jealous. He measures us and messes around with burnt sticks, right? So I wanna look at some things here about the God of the Old Testament. I've, I've been a little bit concerned because as I've been working with younger folks, I'm finding more and more people who are not reading the Old Testament that are rejecting the God of the Old Testament and they're rejecting the God of the New Testament because they have a pretty good idea that it's probably the same God as the Old Testament, but they don't quite understand the Old Testament well enough to know what they're rejecting. Um, I want to redeem a little bit about the God of the Old Testament, who is the God of the New Testament, and I want to help us a little bit to redeem some worship as well, specifically one worship song as we get there. Um, This is a a chart you'll see over and over here as we work through it. I want to focus in primarily, this is the Old Testament in uh, Bible order or chronological order, how the things happened. We're going to be focusing specifically on this time period here. We have the 70 year exile, that's the 70 years that they were outside of the land, and then you have the time period after that. So the prophets writing during the time of the exile, we call those exilic prophets, and they're easy to remember because notice they're Daniel and Ezekiel, they both end in I-E-L, sort of reminds you maybe of Isle there, but you know misspelled a little bit. But Daniel and Ezekiel, they both end in I-E-L, that's all the exilic prophets. So if you wanna memorize all the exilic prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, and you're done, all right? So if you want to know the post-exilic prophets, they're just Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. If you want to memorize the pre-exilic prophets, good luck, it's everything else, and just it's everything else, all right? So just memorize those five, and then you'll know. So when we're, we're jumping into Zechariah here, and uh, we had a sermon just a couple weeks ago about repentance, Um, That Jim gave, and that just covered uh, chapter one, one through five, and we're getting into this first little portion here. I'll blow it up a little bit; still doesn't help, but a little bit. Um, And we're getting into eight visions, and this is where things get weird. If they weren't weird already in Zechariah, we jump into these visions, and I'm not going to be able to explain everything about these visions. But I want to talk specifically about the character and nature of this jealous God. I want to talk a bit about him measuring, and want to talk a little bit about sticks. And as we do this, we're going to redeem worship along the way. So there's some misconceptions about God's jealousy. We tend to take that which our parents exemplified and transfer it over to the Lord. It just inevitably happens. And often, if you have an issue with the Lord, you have an issue with your parents and vice versa. And we see this time and time again as we're trying to pray through things with people is their viewpoint on their parent transfers over to God. And the same thing here with your marital relationships. There's analogies all throughout Scripture about marriage, uh, bringing that as though we're the bride of Christ, or um, you know, the idea of unfaithful wife to, to the Lord. There's all these analogies throughout Scripture. And um, that often comes into play. We start to think more about God being this harsh parent, and God being like this unreasonable husband and wife. And some, for some reason, too, I think we have a little bit of merit to think this way, because scripture makes parallels that make us think in this direction. The analogies point somewhat in this direction. So I don't think we're too far off to think that maybe this is what God is like, right? There's, but there's some misconceptions in this. So the song Reckless Love, I'm not going to survey to see who loves reckless love and who doesn't love reckless love. This is actually a very controversial song. Some people roll right into it. They love it. It's amazing. It's about God relentlessly pursuing you. Um, But it doesn't say relentless love. It says reckless love which is kind of problematic because if you're all powerful, all loving, you can't be reckless, really. I mean, it's, you can't be. And if you are, it would be reckless to be reckless. It wouldn't be good to be reckless here. I understand there's some poetry going on here at the same time. But at the same time, I kind of think that to some degree, if I can get my clicker to work again, this is reckless songwriting, all right, and reckless worship when we sing the reckless songwriting. But those of us who have been in church long enough have found workarounds in order to be able to sing and worship using these kinds of songs. Um, So I'll teach you a little bit about that. How do we work around a song that potentially has some problematic theology? And by the way, part of the reason why this theology could get worse is based upon your view of God. If you already have a view of this jealous God that's like this boyfriend that beats you up all the time, then when you get to this point, singing a song about how reckless he is is just going to make it worse, right? Right? Think about the 99 sheep he leaves. I mean, if he's being reckless here, like he's leaving 99 of the sheep to go after the one, right? And if you're singing the song about the one sheep that he's going after, really, there's a 99 to to 1% odds that you're not in that, (laughs) right? He leaves the 99 for the one, right? And what if the one is Israel and you're some Gentile, you know, because he loves the Jews, right? He doesn't love you so much over here. And if you've had this bad experience all your life and you're like, the Lord has abandoned me. Well, of course, you leave the the 99 to go for the one here, recklessly abandoning all of us. Where were you when this thing happened in my life? Now, maybe I'm reading too much into this. Maybe you guys don't get all stirred up about the song. Maybe it's just the theologians that are like, that is theologically problematic, and the more emotional people ride the wave of the song, and it's cool. I don't know. But I know there's a problem here with this song. There's some issues with this song, but we're going to sing it later today by my request. It can be redeemed. All right. All right, so today, I want to look at the text about God's jealousy here. So if you'll pull up the Zechariah passage, we're still in Zechariah chapter 1. We're gonna we're gonna kind of skim through because we got three chapters we're working through here, so we can't go too fast. Uh, too, through the, we can't go you know slowly through this passage. But if you look at chapter one, starting down in verse eight, it talks about these horsemen that are out. And again, horsemen, what in the world? Like any horsemen comes, this can't be good, right? So now we had horsemen on top of the jealous God with the ruler. Right? But the horsemen are scouting around, and it's really an interesting situation. Because there's this angel there, and it says the angel of the Lord, which seems to mean that this is God or Jesus here. We can't talk too much about that yet. But the idea here is there's an angel, and he actually starts to intercede for the people. And he says, how long, Lord, are you going to be? Uh, not? What's the word there? He said, talks about, see, how long, Lord, host, where you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the cities of Judea, Judea that you've been angry with these 70 years. So he's an angry, jealous God with a stick, with horsemen. Like I said, it just gets worse. So with this, you have this angel, though, seeming to be the nice guy, saying, hey, I'm just going to intercede here a little bit and ask the question, it's been like 70 years that you've been angry. Are you about over this? And the Lord gives back this very gentle, peaceful answer to the angel. And so the angel says, okay, I think I can share that. I can share this gentle, peaceful answer. And, and by the way, you see this in a vision. There's, this isn't like a play-a-movie kind of vision. This is an interaction here. When we're talking about visions in scripture, a lot of the time, they're actually conversations with multiple people. And so as we continue on, um, so the angel was speaking with me, said, proclaim, the Lord of hosts says, um, I am extremely jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I am fiercely angry with the nations that are at ease, for I was a little angry, and they made it worse. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. In mercy, I have returned to Jerusalem. My house will be rebuilt within it. This is the de- declaration of the Lord of hosts. So when we're look, looking at God's jealousy, it's balanced with that graciousness, that gracious answer that was sort of unexpected here. And one of the things that we're told is that it leads him to protect and defend us. So remember Israel, they've now been um, in the wilderness here for 70 years, and I mean in in, uh, Babylon for 70 years, and it was for 490 years they didn't follow the law. Remember, there was this uh, Sabbath day you're supposed to have every seven days, and then every seven years you're supposed to take a Sabbath year. Well, they didn't do that 490 times. So essentially, they've racked up 70 Sabbaths, That they not just owe the Lord, but they owe the land because they've been taking all the resources out of the land when they should have let it rest. And so the Lord finally says, All right, you've broken my law. You're ruining the promised land. I'm kicking you out of the promised land so it can rest for those 70 years that you owe me and you owe the land. But what's going to happen here is when they're in captivity, Babylon mistreats them. And so the Lord says, I was a little angry with you about this, but Babylon made it worse. And so, when, sometimes what happens is we're in a bad situation, and then other stuff starts ta- stacking on top of it. And we start to think, like, yeah, okay, maybe I was in sin, maybe I did something wrong, but now this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. And then after a while, you start thinking, Lord, how long are you going to punish me for this? And what the Lord is saying here is, by the way, I wasn't, all of this isn't my punishment. Some of this is you leaving me and being away now under these abusers, and you're getting abused by these other people, because they essentially, they're the ones who've left the Lord. They got kicked out of the house, but they were the ones that were cheating. And so when you look at what's going on here, the Lord still is their defender, still protecting them, even though they are the ones who were unfaithful. So when we look at God's jealousy here, there's something that's balanced with graciousness and comfort. We're told the anger of the Lord does not accomplish uh, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. So I wonder if God's jealousy is a bit different than man and women's jealousy here as well. So there seems to be something different here. When we look at this word in Hebrew, I'll zoom in on this. But the word jealousy here actually can be translated several different ways. And when we look we're looking primarily in the New American Standard version, And with this, you see jealous can be translated as jealous, envious, um, but it also has zealous or zeal here as well. Um, And when we look up the word zeal, the word zeal means showing great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. Now we have to be careful. We can't just pick whichever Hebrew word we like the best. There's a reason why the, the translators translated it jealous a lot of the time. But realize there is something here about a zealousness that's a part of this word. There's a part of a jealousness to this. Um, and so if we look at this, when we change the song to zealous love, that works a little bit better you know, with this. Um, you know, I, again, I think relentless is still the best. But zealous, I think, is a good word here. The idea that he is constantly showing great energy or enthusiasm toward us, pursuing us. Um, I think you might be able to say God's a jealous God, and maybe that would be good that God actually wants to pursue us. Let's go back to the dating relationship again. So you're dating somebody and you really mess up. For some reason, you're the kind of person that goes out and kisses other people. I don't know who you are, but you do it, all right? So you go out and you're kissing other people and you came back and you realize, you know what? I probably should stop this and I probably should apologize. And you finally work up the nerve to tell the person, you know, I've been doing all these things. And then you come back and you tell them and they're sort of like, that's cool. And you're like, that's cool. Uh, No, no, it's not cool. I'm telling you, I mean, I really did this, and it wasn't good. And they're like, that's fine. Um, And you're trying to figure out here, wait a minute, what is it? Is is it that I don't have value, or is it that they don't value themselves? It seems like it's one or the other. Either they don't value me, or they don't value themselves. And what we find in Scripture is that God is well aware of who he is. He knows He's greater than all other gods. I don't think he has an ego problem on either side of this. And at the same time, he also values us. And so, if we were, it's not like these other gods where you go, you offer a sacrifice, whether that be food to idols or whatever the case may be. You offer the sacrifice, go to the next city, offer the next sacrifice to their temple god, and the god's pretty happy for the sacrifice and maybe blesses you. And he doesn't say, what what about the Artemis of Ephesians over here? You're worshipping Zeus and you worship Artemis. Well, that's fine. Worship as many gods as you want, right? Well, God seems to appreciate fidelity, he seems to appreciate covenant and word, that words mean things, that when we agree to something, that we agree to something, that the marriage vows mean something. And so, I don't know, maybe you're supposed to feel a little bit jealous when someone does something they're not supposed to do. Um, now, that needs to be under the banner of what the Lord is calling you to do. But if someone does something and you're in relationship and it doesn't bother you, that might be an indication that either you don't value them or you don't value yourself. And so I think we need to be careful here when we're looking at this jealousy of God that we don't just think that it's some reckless jealousy that God's going to be doing horrible things because he's this jealous, angry God. So the second thing is the measuring line. When you look down at the text, we now have this measuring line. I looked up, this is 2 verse 1, I looked up and I saw a man measuring with a measuring line in his hand and I asked, where are you going? He answered, to measure Jerusalem and determine its width and its length. When I read that, I thought, oh no, here it comes. This is going to be bad for Jerusalem, right? They're getting measured, right? But now, what happens here then, he says, run and tell them this, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the number of people and livestock in it. The declaration of the Lord is, I will be a wall around it, wall of fire around it, and I will be the glory within it. So, wait a minute, we're measuring Jerusalem and we're finding it's not big enough. We're going to have more people. We're going to have more animals. And that actually is great. In some ways, it's prosperous, but then it becomes really dangerous because people aren't protected by the walls. And remember, Nehemiah is there trying to build the walls up at this time, figuring out what they're going to do. And the Lord is saying, that's fine. You're going to be so prosperous, your city's going to be overflowing. And that's okay, because I'm going to be the glory in the midst of the city. I'm going to be dwelling in the midst of the city. And I'm also going to be this wall of fire around the city on the outside. And so, wait a minute, so wait a minute, measurements isn't always bad. God might be measuring us so that he might bless us. He might be measuring us because he has good things to give us. And so, oh, maybe, maybe measuring isn't always bad either. So um, when we talk about measuring lines, we need to be careful about these misconceptions. Measuring will always lead to judgment. We're always going to be found wanting. It's going to end in our punishment. But instead, we need to realize sometimes God's measuring to bless and to protect. Jerusalem's too small to hold God's blessing, and he's going to be the one who dwells in it. And finally, he's going to be the wall of fire to protect it. So I want to just take a moment and pray through any misconceptions. Maybe some have already come up, and you've already started to realize this. But I just want to take a minute and pray for us and try to shed some of the misconceptions, maybe, that we've had about our jealous God. So let's just pray for a minute. Lord God, we dedicate this space to you. We ask that you would bring our minds to rest and our heart to peace. And Lord, we ask, would you help us to see are we among those that view you as being harsh and unreasonable? Would you search each one of us? Would you help us to see if we've misunderstood your jealousy? We've misunderstood your measuring. Would you search us and see, do we believe that you are here to protect us? Would you help us to see, do we believe that you want us to prosper and be blessed? Would you show us, how have you blessed us each one? Would you bring that to our minds? Would you help us to see, Lord, what are some of the biggest blessings you've given us in this life? Would you bring those to our heart and mind in a way we can receive? And Lord, would you show us, what do you want us to know about those times that it didn't seem like you were protecting us, that you didn't care for our blessing? Would you show us, Lord, are there any lies we're believing about these things? And Lord, what's the truth about these specific lies in our own life? If you're willing, just let go of that lie and receive the truth. Just renounce it. Don't let it be a foothold, a stronghold in your life anymore. Lord, I pray, would you send your truth over each person to heal them in those places where lies are dwelling? And Lord, I pray for each person who've had those abusive spouses or those people in their lives who've mistreated them in a little, little part or a big part I ask that you bring healing in those places, that you would surround them with loving people who would give them the best examples of how to be so that they wouldn't repeat it in their own families. <laughs> I pray that you would continue this good work throughout the week, Lord. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So how much time do I get left here? I, I didn't bring my phone up with me. We're left. 15 minutes. Okay, 15 minutes. Okay, you, you just keep holding that up every once in a while, Johnny. That will help me significantly. All right. So the next point, I want to look at burnt sticks, all right? So I actually uh, brought this burnt stick with me. I pulled it out of the fire last night. Literally the only place that I can hold on to it is where I pulled it out and uh, let it cool down so that it's safe now. But I had that burnt stick. What's interesting, if we continue on in the passage, what we actually see is that the priests of Israel are going to be compared to this burnt stick. And he's going to snatch the priest out of the fire and kind of point out to him, you realize how close you were to destruction, right? You know, you're like the stick that's on fire. And then he's going to silence the accuser. It's, it actually mentions Satan by name there. And there's going to be a rebuke towards Satan. And so the Lord is taking this priest out of seemingly the authority of Satan, at least the fellowship of Satan, and is going to silence the accuser and is going to take this burnt stick and change his clothes. So essentially he's going to take off these old garments and he's going to give them new garments. And it starts to sound a bit like Revelation where we get these new clean robes. And then he explains that he is going to forgive Israel in just one day. It's, I think it's hard for a lot of us to receive forgiveness in just one day, isn't it? Um, I don't know how many days you feel like after you've sinned that you can forgive yourself, um, that you can feel better. I right? you know, Is it a day? Is it a week? Is it a month? Does it depend on how severe the sin is? Maybe it's never. Um, I've heard people say, what if it's unforgivable? Um, unfortunately, like the, the only unforgivable sin we have in Scripture is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's another theological conversation we'll have to have at a different time. Um, and by the way, if you're concerned that you've done that, um, that's also a lie of the enemy. The enemy often takes that verse and then the thorn in the flesh passage and tries to suggest you are stuck in sin, you are stuck in unforgiveness, and you can't get out of it. But if you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit forward, that seems to indicate that you're not lost completely, and that the Lord still can be able to redeem you and pull you forward out of that. But often we tend to think that we're unforgivable or somebody else is unforgivable. Um, with this... The idea of forgiveness here, God is suggesting that he is going to accomplish this forgiveness in just one day. And that sounds a lot like the cross, the coming of Christ. I think it might really be looking ahead toward the coming of Christ. And I think it's important, though, that we don't just think, well, yeah, it all happened in one day, but I'm still horrible. And, you know, I can't be forgiven in this lifetime. Well, no, God is suggesting there's a forgiveness that's available to you. Keep in mind, these were people that their whole, their generations, 490 years, they were not following in faithfulness to God. They're kicked out of their land. God still takes care of them while they're in Babylon. And he's showing them that he is not opposed to dwelling in the midst of them and protecting them again. But he gives them space. He gives them that free will to be able to be out on their own. But that free will out on your own ends up putting you in dangerous places. You've chosen in many ways to be outside of the covenant of the Lord, and bad things are happening, and you blame him for it, but yet at the same time, he's there available to you when you're willing to come back. And here's, here's something I've just been thinking about quite a bit. This is actually the verse out of all of this section that keeps coming to my mind. Maybe it's because I'm in my 40s now, and I have 20 years till the normal retirement. I'm not sure. Um, I've been alive long enough that I probably could have planted a vine in a fig tree and mayb- maybe start to get something off of it. Now, Johnny, how long does it take to get a vine in a fig tree growing? You got any plan? Any idea? I don't know. So with this, the idea, though, is you have them back in the land, and they're sitting under their vine, under their fig tree, enjoying the fruits of their labor, the fruits of these vines, and it, it seems to in- imply that they have planted these things, that there's enough time that they grew a fig tree, they grew a vine, and they're under it. It's interesting because this is the picture that was before they came into the promised land, taking the promised land, that 490 years earlier, the idea is you're going to be um, harvesting grapes from vines that you didn't plant. Um, And that was a blessing. But there's another blessing about having planted it and being able to have such stability in your life that you can grow a vine and you can grow a fig tree. And many of you, you could have grown a vine or a fig tree by now in your life if you just had planted the vine or the fig tree. But many of us live in fear as though, like, oh, it's all unstable. It's all unsteady. The world's going to fall apart. Um, and if you've been alive long enough, you remember the Mayan calendar. Remember, um, you remember 2000, you know, when everything was going to crash. Um, there's, there's a bunch of these. There's swine flu. You know, there's all sorts of things that were going to happen here. Um, and now that we've gone through COVID and it was, you know, a serious shutdown, Many people tend to think, like, we aren't going to have peace. We aren't going to have prosperity. Um, And I don't know. I don't know if you're going to have time to plant a vine and a fig tree, every one of you. I don't know. This isn't a promise necessarily for you. This is for Israel coming back to the land. But it is in the nature of the kind of God that we serve. And many of us fritter our life away thinking and worrying. And if we had just planted the fig tree, if we had just planted the vine, we'd be sitting there right now enjoying it. And by the way, Why not make your pleasures as simple as a vine and a fig tree? Why do you have such a big goal that you have to accomplish all these things and to be happy? Why not share a fig with a friend and a glass of whatever that is with your friends because you are having the prosperity of the Lord, enough prosperity that you can sit down and enjoy the simple things? Maybe if you simplify your taste a little bit, you start to see the prosperity of the Lord all around you. Now you start to see that you're striving to get rich when really, if you had just enjoyed those simple things. Some of you need to break out your bank accounts because you've been saving your whole life and you've not done anything with it and you're just going to give it to your kids someday and maybe they'll do something good about it. Maybe they won't. Maybe you won't even want to give it to your kids. I don't know. But with that, there is, this, there is this principle here of enjoying some of the fruits of your labor. So some of you who are tr- striving and toiling here, you need to actually be enjoying some of the fruits of your labor. And some of you need to realize that even though you're a burnt stick, it's OK. The Lord can redeem burnt sticks. That's about as far as it gets, really. That's the point of it. It's about as far as you can get. It was snatched out of the fire. But he also talks about a branch. Now, over here, I have a log. Excuse me. I have a log. And out of it, I have a branch growing out of the log. What's different about a branch and a stick like they're kind of the same sort of, right? Now a branch in the fire versus a st- uh, I mean, a stick in the fire versus a branch, what, what's the difference between the two really? When does a branch become a stick? When it 's cut off, right? Um, and when it comes to Israel, they were almost entirely cut off. They looked like they were dead. But the idea is that God has this righteous remnant. And it seems as though the branch, as we see this theme of the branch developing throughout the Old Testament, that the branch is the Messiah, that the branch is the true Israel, it's the true son, it's the true servant here. Um, And so it's one of these things where it's kind of a mystery, where God is going to become the branch to save the whole stump, you know? Um, And so this is, I think, an amazing picture of just when you think everything is cut off, and you're over here, you're the stick, you're not even on the log anymore. You're the stick in the fire, but the branch is still your hope. And it's, it, the, the analogies, I think, do parallel a bit when Jesus talks about I'm the vine, you're the branches, and so on. And so sometimes you are the branch, and sometimes he's the vine, and our analogies don't, aren't always perfectly lined up. But there is this sense in which we have this hope of the branch saving the sticks, And one of the things that's interesting is he's not just talking to the priest, he talks about the priest and the people who are with him. And he says that these people who are with you are going to be proof of the branches coming. And so if you're a stick snatched out of the fire, and you've been purified, you've been made whole. And really, let's face it, we're all kind of sticks in, in some of the things that we've decisions that we've made. The idea, though, is that the fact that you now have this clean robe, you've now been brought back into fellowship with the Lord, into this place where you're in the city, His glory dwells there, and you're surrounded by this fire. That's a testimony that the branch is to come. And so when we look at this time, they're looking to the first coming of Christ. For us, we're looking at the second coming. But still, your redeemed life is the proof that the branch is to come. And so the question is, are you still a burnt stick, or has God redeemed you? And if you're a burnt stick, you're not going to feel like much. If you're not listening for the voice of the Lord, and you're not sensing Him calling you out of that burnt stickness, then you are going to just think you're nothing but a burnt stick. And so part of what I want to try to help a little bit here is in this jealous relationship between You and God and all these other people he's jealous of because of your attentions that you've given in different places. And we give our attentions now in different places a lot of the time. I have a little bit more time than that. I'm all right. I'm right. He said I can go a little over. Um, And so with this, the idea of um, God redeeming you, God preparing this branch that's yet to come, I think it's important for us to change a little bit the way that we worship. So, I'm going to just take a brief moment here, and then we're going to roll into our last song. But let me just pray over a couple things we covered here. Let's pray for a second. Lord God, we lift up the accuser's accusations. We ask, Lord, in each person here, if there's anything that the accuser is accusing them of, Lord, throughout their days, throughout their weeks, would you highlight that? Would you help that to seem so foreign? Lord, those things of the accuser that are becoming a part of their mind, their heart, their identity, those things that are not really of you but are the voice of the accuser that is accusing them as they are that burnt stick, we come against that in the name of Jesus, and we ask, Lord, that you would make it very evident, that you would give them power to throw off the voice of the accuser, that you would help them, Lord, to be willing to let you change their clothes and receive your forgiveness in just one day. So, Lord, we pray that you would guide us, that we would sit under a vine or a fig tree and not be afraid to plant it, to share in that prosperity, looking ahead for the branch to come. And, Lord, that we all here, every one of us, would live a life that would look toward the coming of the branch. Amen. Amen. So, as you sing this, you can be thinking in your head. So here's a couple worship tricks that people do. All right. So one of the things is you cannot sing certain words of the song. A silent, it's not a protest, but it's more of you not getting distracted in worship. So I don't know if you guys do this, but you just like skip whole, sometimes it's a whole line. You're like, I'm not singing that. That is not doctrinally sound. I'm not even singing that. Some, some, th- some of you will need to sing some lines because you think, I can't own that. Well, ask the Lord, Lord, can I own that verse? Can I own that line in that song? You might find that there's something in you that's not truthful, and you should be singing certain lines. And, and one of the things you can do, you can sing, this isn't what I do, but some people do this. You sing uh, reckless love, but you think zealous in your head. You're thinking this thing. I, I can't quite do that. Some of you can do that, maybe. Um, and so here's a couple other things, though, that I think is helpful. Some of you, it would be helpful if you engage your imagination a little bit more as you were thinking through, allow pictures to come into your head. So as you're singing the songs, picture what's happening in the song and picture where you are in the song. And I want to also introduce a little Zechariah into this. So as you're picturing these things, picture that you are living in a city where God is its glory and its walls are walls of fire around you. Picture that God is defending you. Even when you're being disciplined, he is still helping you. Picture yourself as that formerly burnt stick but now dressed in fine clothes, eating and drinking from your own vine and fig tree, and that this is a sign for everything's to come. So bring this into this song, take out whatever's not good in this song, and bring in these things as you picture this and pray through it. All right, thanks guys.